All right, so our study this morning is John chapter 5. Uh, this is going to be Jesus' testimony before the Sanhedrin. <coughs> John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, as far as the reading of God's word. So I said uh, in, the, in the introduction before the reading, this is Jesus' testimony before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jesus is, in, in a very real sense, 
on trial before the Jewish leaders. And what, what is his crime? Does anyone remember uh, the lesson from last week? What, what is it that Jesus has done that has caused such a ruckus amongst the Jewish community? Ethan. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. That was, that was mistake number one. And then there was, uh, there was kerfuffle number two that made it even worse than that. That started it. And then what? Uh, Chase? He told him to take his bed and carry it. Okay, he told him to take up his bed and carry it. Josiah? He called himself the Son of God. He called himself the Son of God. Now what's the direct implication there, Mr. Schwanabelt? That he is God. That he is God. He is on trial for initially healing a man on the Sabbath, telling him to take up his bed and walk on a day that's in their custom not lawful to do healings, which is a strange thing. But more than that, he's claiming, I have the right, I have the authority to do this because I am the Son of God. In fact, because I am God. And that's a very important verse to have in your back pocket should you ever encounter a Jehovah's Witness. Because if you try and, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God. He is the first and greatest being that God created. And then through him, he created all things. And if you take them as we reflexively do to John 1 and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They have an argument that they're going to recite from memory that's bad, but the point is you're not going to penetrate their thinking with that verse, even though it is true that that verse very plainly teaches the deity of Christ. A, a really good one to have in your back pocket, though, is John five eighteen. This is the Apostle John giving his uh, parenthetical aside to that whole thing. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John the Apostle, the one who was there and wrote this, is saying, not they understood him to be saying he was equal with God. They're saying, he's saying, no, his teaching was making him equal with God. And that made the scribes and the Pharisees mad, made them desire to kill him for blasphemy. And so we've got the stage that Jesus is on trial. Uh, and for Jesus to say such a thing certainly would be blasphemy if it were not true. Um, another good kind of <clears throat> apologetic argument to have in y'all's back pockets as you prepare to go to college and things like that. And, and you'll hear some people say, uh, well, uh, I don't believe Jesus is God, but he's, he's a good moral teacher that we can, we can get information from. We can kind of try and follow his ethic, and that's good. The problem with that is Jesus very plainly claimed to be God. And if he did so and was wrong, that makes him a liar. That makes him a blasphemer. That makes him not a reliable source of moral and ethical teaching. Uh, and so remember, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis coined the argument that Jesus is either Lord, as he claimed to be, liar and deceiver, because he very clearly claimed to be Lord, and if he was not, that would be deception, or the third option is he's a lunatic and also, therefore, should not be consulted for moral and ethical teaching. So which of the three is it going to be? Lord, liar, or lunatic? We believe, and I, I, the Bible teaches, that he is the first one, that he is Lord. And so it's an interesting thing that the Lord is being brought on trial in these verses. Uh, many scholars have thought that Jesus gives this speech as a, as a legal defense before uh, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like the, the chief governing body of the religious uh, leaders of that day. That's, it would be, uh, this, this would be something akin to um, if, a, if a minister 
in our presbytery started teaching heresy publicly, he would be brought on trial before all the other ministers in our region. That's kind of what's going on here, except it's on a bigger scale than that. Uh, and the reason that so many think this is because uh, it's a very formal and organized speech. John presents it as a legal charge that has been filed by the Jewish leaders. J.C. Ryle, who's a great Anglican scholar of the 1800s, says, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. And I think he's absolutely right. This is a unique passage wherein the Lord gives an extended discourse on who he is and why he does what he does. And I hope some of y'all were paying attention as I was, as I was reading. You're like, there's a lot of deep stuff in here. And that's true. And we could spend very well three or four weeks on this whole passage. But I want to also recognize that it's one united speech. There's one point that he's driving at. Yes, there's lots of things worthy of our consideration, but we want to see the, the, the forest and not lose sight of it for the trees, as it were. Does that make sense? Everything in here is worth meditating on, but we're treating it as one unit because it is one speech that he gave. Uh, with all that said, Jesus is giving his testimony before these Jewish leaders, and it generally falls into, um, into three parts that we're going to see this morning. Verses 19 to 23 Jesus is going to declare, uh, I have the authority to do these things because I am the Son of God. 19 to 23 is Jesus' authority stated. And then in 24 to 30, he is going to, from that authority, give an invitation and a warning. So 19 to 23, Jesus' authority stated. 24 to 30, Jesus' authoritative invitation and warning. And then finally, in verses 30 to 47, we see Jesus' authority proved. So his authority stated, his authoritative invitation and warning, and lastly, his authority proved. Uh, so we'll start with his authority stated in verses 19 to 23. Uh, these verses are, are so important to our understanding of the Trinity in general and the relationship between the Father and the Son specifically. Uh, the first thing that we want to note, and really the main thing we're going to note from this section, is the unity of their work. He says, The Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. <clears throat> and the point is it, here is not that Jesus is somehow less than the Father, that he is um, unable to act without being commanded by the Father. That's not what's being said. Uh, surely our shorter catechism is correct when it says there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. They are equals. The Father and the Son are equal. So he's not in this sense saying that he is subordinate to the Father. This is, again, why Jesus is on trial in the first place. It's because he's made himself equal with God. And this would be an odd rebuttal. Oh, no, you misunderstood me. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, it is, as one scholar put it, it is because of, of his sameness with the Father. What he's saying is, I can do nothing of my own accord because I am exactly like my Father. And the things that he does, I do by nature. By, it is my nature to do the things the Father does. 
In other words, it is because of the great unity that the Father and the Son share together in the, in the Godhead that he can't help but act in conjunction with his Father. John Calvin would put it this way, in this work, that is the work that God does, there is no difference between him and his Father. Lack of difference does not mean lack of distinction, right? We can recognize the Father, we can recognize the Son, they're distinct, but they are utterly and totally united. The Father and the Son, being two persons of the Godhead, are united in purpose. Uh, namely, that purpose is in the case of redemption and election, right? The Father chose those who would be saved from before the foundations of the world. And the Son, in time, came and redeemed those whom the Father chose. Jesus is going to say in the next chapter that all that the Father gives to me, that's what happens first, will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no way cast off. They are united. They desired to save the same people. They are united uh, in all of the works that they carry out. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit also being sent to effectually call those whom the Father chose, those whom the Son uh, died to save. Uh, one artist put it this way, that the Father chooses them, the Son is bruised for them, and the Holy Spirit renews and produces fruit in them. They are all three united for the same people. And some may take the lead on, on particular aspects or particular works that God does. The Father may be primary in some ways, the Spirit in others, the Son in others. But the point is, they all do everything together. Another scholar, and I'm quoting a lot of scholars here because it's important that we get precision and specificity with what we're saying. Because this is an area that a lot of people speak unclearly about, and that leads to lack of clarity for you. I don't want to be one of those people who foolishly speaks with lack of clarity. So I'm quoting here a lot, but these will... Uh, dissipate shortly. Uh, Herman Ritterboss explains, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing is explained not by subordination to the father, but by sonship. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That is what makes him the son. That is to say that being like his father is what makes him the son. That's the nature and identity of who he is. And they're also united in verse 21. It uh, speaks of, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. This is what I was just speaking about earlier. The, 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 the work of salvation is, is a united work. It's a joint venture that the Father and the Son do together. Verse 22 also says that they are united in receiving honor. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I'm sorry, verse 21 uh, no, 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. They are so united that to fail to honor one is to fail to honor both. You can't say, I have a good relationship with the Son, but not so much with the Father. You know, you've got both or neither. Or you've got all three or neither for speaking of the Trinity corporately. And then also they are united in judgment in verse 22. Um the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has, he has delegated that to him and endorses it. So whatever the Son's verdict on you is, so is the Father's. And this is another really uh, important thing for you all to, to, to get straight in our thinking. Because I'll, I'll never forget, um, my first semester in seminary, I was sitting in Reformed spirituality. And the professor asks us, what 
comes to mind when you think of God the Father? Just what are some words that come to mind when you think of God the Father? And these are men, myself included, training for gospel ministry. We've, we've done a fair bit of reading before we got to seminary. Um, and, and we're pretty committed to this stuff. And without fail, every single one of us listed something um, about his wrath, about his judgment, about um, his displeasure of sin. All of those are true. There were, I don't know, 15 of us in that room. Not one of us talked about his love, his grace, his mercy. Because that's the way people tend to default think of the Father. The Father is harsh and the Son makes us lovable or something like that. And that is wrong. And it's clearly laid out in this passage that they are united. So so it ought to be that when we think of Jesus' love for us, when we think of his kindness for us, he loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20, that we remember that it's not just him. It's also the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. They are united in their love for you. That's why it's important to get this unity thing down for them so that you would not have an imbalanced relationship with your triune God, that you would know that as the Son looks on you with, with pity, protection, provision, so does the Father. And more than that, this is good news for you because it means that you will never be caught in the middle of a disagreement within the Godhead. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you're under two authorities that are equal in their authority and they don't agree. It's rough. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable because you don't know what to do. You don't know what the right, you don't know which one to listen to because they're both in power. They're both in control. And what do I do if they're not on the same page? I've told some of you this story before, but I had that experience again not long ago. I was going for my licensure exams to be licensed to preach in this presbytery. And Dr. Phillips is on that committee. And Dr. Piper from Greenville Seminary was on that committee. And they had, an, they had a question about which they disagreed on the answer. So either way I went, I was wrong by someone who was going to vote on whether or not I could be a, a preacher licensed in this presbytery. And I won't go into all the details of, of how that got reconciled, but the point is, you'll never have to deal with that within the Godhead. They're completely united, of one mind, and one purpose, and one love for you. Because they are united, you never have to worry about what's the right thing to do. Who should I obey? Who should I listen to? No, both. Because they agree. They're utterly united in their purpose. That's Jesus' first offense. His, his second, actually, it's, it's interesting, is he turns the table on them in verses 24 to 30. Because he's going to say, being who I am, it is not me who is on trial here, but you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5, 24 is, is another uh, really important verse to have, I would recommend, memorized. I would recommend if you want to spend uh, the next couple of days memorizing one passage of scripture, John 5, 24. He who believes my word, or he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is an invitation by Christ to the men that have him on trial. Hear my word. Believe in him who sent me, because if you do, you will pass from judgment. You're currently under judgment because of your hardness of heart, because of your sin. 
But if you would but hear and listen and believe, you would pass. Um, he, he makes the same offer that, that you might not only hear the word of God, but that you might believe it. And, and the Greek word that's translated believe here, believe is a good translation. I'm not saying it's not, but it has more than just saying, I, I believe that's true. It, it's, it's, it's believing and trusting that it's true. Right, And so what's the difference in that? Uh, one very popular illustration of the difference between believing and trusting is saying, um, I, I believe that this chair could hold me if I sat upon it. It looks sturdy. It looks, I, I believe I saw somebody sitting up here playing guitar the other day. I, I believe it can do that. Trusting is the act of actually sitting down and relying on it to do what I believe it can do. You guys see the difference there. And the invitation that Jesus offers is not only to believe what he's saying is true, but to actually trust in it, to depend on it, to live as though it were true. Um, And to know it as a point of faith. It is only when we rest in the truth of God's word, when we trust in the truth of God's word, that we actually experience its life-giving power. And, And then notice also, he says, he does not say, passes from death to one day receive life. You, you, you get eternal life the moment that you believe and trust in his word, which means that you are currently right now in possession of that new nature that will live forever, and, and you get to nourish and strengthen it uh, in this life. And he begins um, to, to kind of develop that thought in verse 25 and, and making clear... Why this is so important? Why does this matter? What's, that, that's the authoritative invitation. Uh, uh, hear my word and believe him who sent me. Then there's the authoritative warning. And he begins again with this formula, truly, truly. Uh, and it's a phrase that he uses often to introduce a <clears throat> particularly important statement. And before we get to that, what that statement is, it's important that we note that the words of Jesus are not only the ones who, of one who has authority, but they're the words of one who speaks the truth. Again, you guys will experience this as you grow up and, and, and go get jobs and, uh, and, <clears throat> and, and other things, and, and you find yourself under people's authority, and they do have authority, but maybe they're not telling you the truth. Maybe it's a lie. We often call these people politicians. <laughs> Jesus is not a politician. He speaks from authority, and what he says is true and reliable. And what it is that he says, what he warns them of, is that there's an hour coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who hear now will live. That hour has come to hear and to believe. And then he says that there is another hour coming. He says that there is an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I think it was Dr. Gaffin that said that the focus of all of Jesus' teaching is actually primary eschatological. That is to say, he's, he's focusing everything he's got on that coming day of resurrection. Jesus offers not just better life, but resurrection life, eternal life. And he warns not just of harsh judgment, but of eternal judgment. And he does so as one who speaks the truth in love. 
And it's true that there's a world to come. It's true that, that there are trials and afflictions that you will suffer in this life, but they are only but for a passing, fleeting moment, and that there is a world of eternity on the other side. And because that's true, it only makes sense that we pursue those things of the life to come now. I, I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 18 to 20, where he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not are not real. He doesn't say they're not real. They are real. They're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What's the hope? The hope is this day of resurrection. When the sons of God, that's you and I, who have trusted and believed the gospel, will be brought forth in glory. And those who have done the works of the devil will be brought forth to a resurrection of judgment. And all things will be made right. Now, very quickly, we will close with Jesus has declared his authority because of his unity with the Father. He has, from that authority, invited them to repent and believe. He has also, from that authority, warned them of the results of those who do not believe. And now, in verses 30 to 40, he's going to seek to prove his authority. Uh, We see this in verses 30 to 35 first. Jesus says, essentially, that it is not on his own witness that he bears this authority, but he appeals to, first of all, the accepted authority of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was publicly endorsed uh, and, and regarded by, by the crowds as a great teacher, as one who spoke with the spirit and with power and with authority. He was highly revered in his day. And he had borne testimony publicly to Jesus' ministry. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you remember... In John chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, his disciples are concerned that others are going to follow Jesus and leaving his ministry. And he says, that's good, because my ministry is all preparatory for him. It's all preparatory for the one who would come. And Jesus says, uh, John the Baptist has endorsed my ministry. He has said, I am the one that has come from God. And then he also points to the witness of the Father. He says, in verses 36 to 37. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. By the way, there is no dispute. There, there are plenty of records that we have outside the Bible of Jesus in the first century. There is no credible historical dispute about whether or not there was a man who lived in, in Nazareth and Galilee and purported to be the Son of God and had 12. No one disputes that. You know what else no one disputes from that time period? That he did miracles. Now, they have different explanations of, of what happened, right? There's, there's all kinds of different theories about how he achieved them, as it were. But no one disputes that he was associated with signs and wonders. And so Jesus says, these very signs that I am doing bear witness, bear testimony, that the Father has sent me. He's saying, you, you, you have the, the testimony of, of worldly men that you know and trust and, and regard. And he says, I'm the real deal. You, you have the very signs. Remember, it started with, uh, as, as Ethan pointed out, the, the healing of the man on the Sabbath. No one disputed that that happened. He says, that, that's testimony. And then he points to the ultimate, the final authority. right? Because, because John the Baptist, no matter how, how highly we may esteem him, he's only a man. 
And even the works that God has sent Jesus to do are subject to our own um, oftentimes flawed perception. He points to the final, the ultimate, the stable authority, the very same one that, that I would point you to, that any faithful pastor would point you to. It's the authority of the word of God bears witness to his own authority. In verse 38, he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. How do I know? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Lots of people in this world will seek to give you biblical advice. And insofar as it goes, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but there are lots of people that use the Bible as a means to the end of a better life here. That use the Bible as a means to the end of, of doing things better for purely for the sake of here and now. Does the Bible do that? Yes. But the Bible does more than that. It points beyond the here and now, and it points us to the Lord Jesus. And so to, to, to revere and esteem and search and care for the scriptures and not let the scriptures lead you to Christ is to use them wrongly. Jesus says the chief evidence that you don't even understand what you're talking about is you don't understand the word incarnate right before you. Um, it's good and right to seek to live a, a, a biblical life, a biblically based life, but don't try and do so apart from the Savior to whom the Bible would point us. Jesus concludes then with this knockout blow. The very scriptures that they pride themselves on knowing so well testify so clearly to Jesus that their lack of love for God is acknowledged by their own refusal to come to him. They are indeed men to be above all most pitied. And um, it is an unfortunate truth that many, even in the American evangelical church, are this way. Um, that they, they desire... Uh, biblical, conservative morals and all those things, but they will not ultimately, when push comes to shove, bend the knee to the Lord Jesus. And uh, let that not be so among us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word. And we give thanks to you for the Savior who it reveals. I pray, Lord, for these, my dear friends, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that in knowing him, they would pass from death to life. In Jesus' name, amen.